this podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box to this episode. Patreon is a monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. I'm Rania Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. I'm a student. I'm doing history and Middle Eastern studies, and I'm an activist. Noor Mohammed Hadeb. I'm a historian. I study and teach history, um, and I'm a writer. When the revolution broke out on October 17th, we were in New York City, and we were reading the news. We reacted towards it. Um, we rallied up to the embassy, Elsa, to the consulate. Elsa, you know, kind of heralded that attack, <laughs> that uh, kind of, you know, the, the, the first action we did. Mm-hmm. And then we sat down to try to write an official statement, a list of demands from the group of expats that we recognized we kind of self-affiliated with as, as a community of expats in New York. And what we were saying is we need to be as objective and as political as possible in this statement, but we cannot appropriate what is happening in Lebanon to our own standards. I personally believe, uh, you know, I kind of always read such movements as movements against the Nizam al-Ta'ifi, against the sectarian state of affairs, Mm. the sectarian regime. Um, But we were having that conversation. Like, we can't say things that are, you know, we can't impose demands Mm. on that movement, whatever is happening on that protest movement in Lebanon. As we were watching the news overnight, so as the second day of revolution unfolded in Lebanon, that was exactly this, the language being used on the streets. Mm. We need the elimination of the sectarian regime. We demand the transition into early elections. Mm-hmm. That was very surprising. So in your sense, it's because the calls are for more than just a cosmetic change, mm-hmm. that, there, that regime change is at stake. That's what makes it different this time around. Totally. Okay. And it's not just the call for the regime change. Mm. It's the fact that it is, I want to say, the lay person in Lebanon mm. demanding the regime change. Mm. Yeah. It is not, as we say, you know, the cliques in the coffee shops, the intellectuals yeah. Yeah, yeah. trying to move everything and mend it to fit this kind of vision of a secular civic state in Lebanon. Mm. It is the people. The demonstrators that, w- that were there in 2005, 2015, and whatnot, all the other times, yeah. kind of... Um, sedimented experiences uh-huh. and right now it's as if they're there they know what to do right so they kind of have been experts at this and people have been looking up to them mm-hmm. platforms that have been building up for years and years and years are now platforms that people trust and look at so now you have kind of a source right. your civil society in lebanon is kind of much more powerful right now because yes. it's it's been building up for years and the right. second one um second thing that really stood out to me was the mm-hmm. And it's the fact that uh, right now, for instance, um, several of us are coordinating Mm -hmm. groups from all around the world um, who are really working politically. They're seeing that there is a humanitarian discourse being um, 
sometimes overshadowing the political discourse. However, the political discourse is there. They're talking about elections. They're talking about registering for elections. They're talking about the new groups and Mm -hmm. wanting people to come and speak about new people, new faces come and speak about economic, political, social affairs, um, women affairs, feminist issues, LGBTQ issues. I had never seen the space in Beirut be so full of LGBTQ uh, statements, you know, yeah. and seeing LGBTQ activists leading certain protests, mm-hmm. even in Tripoli, right? Yeah. So for yeah. me, these are the most uh, significant things um, that kind of make this revolution or the, these demonstrations stand out from all the others, plus yeah. it being four months plus in, right? And right. the increasing police brutality, but that's something else. <laughs> you know, I think in both of these responses, sort of like unlayering all the different... Multi- it's such a complicated moment, and yet all of what you're describing is positive. Mm-hmm. There's a positive departure from the old ways of protesting, mm-hmm. not only the old ways of governing. And I like that you focused in on the disenfranchised groups that have found their space for the first time. And you're kind of reflecting on protesters' evolution, mm-hmm. whether it's a sort of a moving beyond the Houston crisis for accountability, or for that matter, the geopolitical story 15 years ago. This is almost like all of the above at once. And Noor, you're talking about something which is more or less at the top, which is the structure is under threat. That the, 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 the state in itself, for the first time, is really being threatened. Not in a way that we've seen before. And I got lucky because I just arrived a few weeks ago. And I met Noor, I think, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I believe. Yeah. yeah. At one of the LAU events that right away talked about the domestic issue. And then a week later, about the uh, diaspora yeah, issue. Yeah, and I think both are kind of what you're describing, that both are changing. Let's start with the diaspora, since we're here in New York, and then we'll go into the domestic issue. At a glance, and I know New York has a larger population, so it's easier to do things here than it would be in St. Louis, for example, or in the middle of nowhere, where you get maybe 50 people. Here there are going to be thousands of Lebanese, potentially, that would show up. Just that initial moment when you guys were rushing to the consulate, and I, I like the way you described it, I saw those demonstrations from Beirut. Mm-hmm. I was watching Paris, watching New York, Australia, it looked like the whole world was going crazy for Lebanon. And of course it wasn't. It's Lebanese around the world going crazy. For a good reason. Was that moment for you a tipping point for the diaspora? And I think we kind of touched on that at the most recent panel. Mm -hmm. Did the diaspora see itself as a political power or a power base in this moment from your own perspective? Mm -hmm. And I ask this because I know that you guys go back and forth regularly. So in a way you're able to see what's happening there, but you also have an appreciation for what's happening here. There's something about the diaspora that needs to be contextualized, and Mm. that's like, personally, that's one of the things that I did not see. I Mm. appreciated that the speaker in LEU made the distinction between diasporas and said it's not one big thing, but it's still this abstracted diaspora. And I personally can't speak about the diaspora, I can speak about how I see this happening right now. One of the main things is the diaspora today is screaming to be included, you know? Yeah. And this is a very novel happening. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a couple of years back, we got our right to vote as diaspora. Right. And this induced a radical transformation in the minds of diasporic people. Mm-hmm. For hundreds of years, 
you know, and we have the term intishar, and it's a very Lebanese specific thing that we Lebanese and intishar in the mm. kind of in, in dispersion that we're yeah, still yeah. Lebanese, but we're dispersed somehow. Right. But our relationship with Lebanon is very much nostalgic. It's yeah. very much yeah, yeah. this home that we yearn for, we hope to return for someday. Mm-hmm. In different places, we just go out for a couple of years and come back, hope yeah. to retire, whatever. The fact that now we are part of a political communi- community mm. with voting agency mm. creates for my generation, at least, a different perspective on what it means to be an expatriate. Mm. Mm-hmm. And here you get this distinction between people who consider themselves immigrants yeah. and those who consider themselves expats right. within the diaspora. Right. And the diaspora communities, second, third generation, trying to reclaim their connection to Lebanon. Yeah. Right? So you have all those things happening and the revolution breaks out all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, and within the diasporic communities, you always, you also have this kind of, is this a humanitarian thing? Right. Are we going to save Lebanon now? Yeah. Because this is what we, we, what we promised ourselves when we left, not myself, but yeah. I'm thinking this is a rationale that goes around. I'm going to actually interrupt you here because yeah. you shared something online to I the did. degree of don't call this a humanitarian crisis. That's right. Keep, keep the political moment alive. Yes. Yeah. Because it's it's problematic. Yeah. And no, there are you know major strands within the diasporic movement right mm. now. Some which is really looking at ways of being involved politically in Lebanon. Right. Um, but can I just interrupt again? Yeah. Sorry. I, from a cynical perspective, mm-hmm. to me it looked like that's all that could be done for that moment, which is protest, protest, protest in Washington Square or at the consulate. But taking that. And what you're, I think, trying mm-hmm. to achieve seems to be so difficult and not, not let's say, um, not appealing to the larger population. I agree with you. But yeah. honestly, if you ask me what I'm trying to do, mm. I'm not going, I'm not hoping to do a social media campaign or something <laughs> that sells. Yeah, I'm working yeah. for a revolution. Right. My commitment is for a revolution. You know, the only thing that is less attainable than what I'm talking about in terms of diaspora being transnationally yeah. involved in the Lebanese political community is actually a revolution in Lebanon. That's the most unattainable thing you can right. think about. Right. You so know? your focus is still on Lebanon, not necessarily on... I mean, well, I guess what I'm getting at is your own personal mm-hmm. decisions and your own personal ability. Does the diaspora have within itself the capabilities of pressuring political change in Lebanon? So in other words, can you see a can you see a a power base emerging that is different than what Lebanese are used to when it comes to the diaspora? We have beyond, to. Yeah, we have to. So you beyond know, just these old religious sort of institutions yes. that we're familiar with. Yeah, we have to. You know, even beyond the idea that either the diaspora functions as a lobby in the countries where it's based, mm. yeah, or functions as financial support to Lebanon in general. Right. You right. Know? The, the diaspora can do other things, and we have to imagine those roles. What do you imagine, though? Because I'm curious because I know that you're heavily involved, mm-hmm. and your name has come up through different sort of friends, and I've, I've seen sort of... I mean, I'm, I'm ad, I admire the patience you have, because although you said it's, it is true, it's only been 120-some days, but it is, it is taxing. It does occupy a lot of Definitely. time and effort. I mean, what do you see as that kind of... I mean, you're saying imagine... How do you imagine that population changing Lebanon? I mean, my personal involvement, organizing within diasporic circles, but also 
trying to lend as much support as possible. And mm. here I'm talking ideas, I'm mm. talking uh, outsourcing uh, tasks, I'm talking material support when possible. Right. Uh, you know, keeping the channel alive between here and my community back home. Right, right. You know? And that's the difference between me, say, for example, and a second generation or a person who has been living abroad for longer than... I've only been here for six years, seven years. Six years. Okay. So I'm still fresh. My friends, when I moved here, 24 years old, my friends are 31 now, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, but for me, and I've met a bunch of people who went back to Lebanon in this time, reconnected with their communities, Mm. joined the political movements that are happening right now, not just as people supporting them, but people who want to be included. Right. Who are happy to, from abroad, put around resources Mm. to support them. Beyond um, that sort of simple, this is a humanitarian moment. This is not a humanitarian yeah, moment. Right, 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 right. The humanitarian moment in Lebanon has existed since Lebanon existed. <laughs> That's a nice Let's not forget of, the yeah. fact that the, the, one of the main reasons there is a Lebanon is because it followed a famine. <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah. to humanitarianize it is to depoliticize it. And this is the essence of the problem we've suffered as a generation since the 90s. I like that perspective, and I don't think that's shared enough. So I actually appreciate that you shared that. The vulgarity aside, but the vulgarity is how you deliver that kind of message, and Mm -hmm. I think it's important. I think one of the main issues of why this is a revolution is because it has questioned every kind of ethical code. Elsa, do you have that kind of... I mean, is it a shared opinion on the role of the diaspora, and perhaps even within that the abilities and the constraints of a population abroad? Yeah, I mean, uh, having been one of three people who started Mkhtarbim Mishtamain generally all around the world, with even people who started off and left, mm. I, I've seen this shift, to be quite honest, from yeah. the beginning of the revolution up until today, right? Um, the shift in a positive way. In a, in a positive as well as a... I mean, it's it's both. It's positive yeah. and negative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in Benihei, the most important thing that, that we started off with was that we are a reflection of the Lebanese revolution. Mm. We are extremely connected to it. Yeah. We, are, we are not going to do things on our own. We're not right. going to say things on our own. No, we are really just a reflection of what is what the revolution is in Lebanon, right? Yeah. Um, and, I mean, when we say diaspora, it's not one entity. Because yeah. you have different generations, you have different reasons why they left Lebanon, yeah. you have different times when they left Lebanon, right. you, had, you have different contexts context where they are. The people in Africa, for instance, weren't able to protest, right? Because of their embassies. In New York, we were able to protest. Right. In Paris, we were able to protest. In Paris, they faced the um, Daoni. Uh, parties over there because they they are really well established as you mentioned yeah. before there are institutions that have been established for years from the nizam right and us starting off right now i feel like yeah. this is the first time uh, diasporas the diaspora lebanese diaspora around the world is really as connected right mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. we have calls every week yeah. uh, we have whatsapp groups where we coordinate together we have a slack channel where we build projects together we have a website that you can actually access and see what type of projects are happening out there yeah. all around yeah. the cities every city has its own um character yeah. but at the same time there is one thing you're working towards right right um and i don't know if you saw the demonstration that happened in beirut in december um uh, demonstration where we just walked all of us together we met each other in beirut oh great so you guys were you flew in 
in December. Exactly. To, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many of the people we had just met on our phones, right. on WhatsApp yeah, 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 and yeah. on Facebook, and and we were organizing together right. for months. Yeah, yeah. Then we meet each other in Beirut. Of course, I remember this other, now. You know, it's right? funny. These things become they become fuzzy yeah that's just that's two months ago only yeah I mean you, you described I remember this now it feels like a year ago exactly but no I remember that of course it was on the news and everyone was kind of flying in to participate that's right and yeah. it, it, we they participated we participated in the independence yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. rally yeah. and then also afterwards right. in right. December when everyone was there for the for the holidays as well we yes. did a demonstration together and it was so beautiful to just put faces on names that you had been working with right I feel like this is a chance that we have right now that we didn't have before is that because of the connectivity technology allows you to do these curious things which is coordinate with someone potentially in Australia that you never met and you're chatting about meeting in Beirut and you're both technically diaspora, but you're making a decision to connect in Beirut. Is technology that central sort of the, the thing that didn't happen in the past, which is you simply couldn't connect easily? I mean, they definitely were connected in a way in the past, but not as easily. Yeah. Uh, letters, uh, postcards, uh, I don't know, right? Or even phone calls. Yeah. But now it's different because now you can see the person and see their pictures and see their history and yeah. even get in touch with them every single day. I used to have calls with people I didn't know every single day. Right. So this kind of shifts the dynamic. And I like that within that, there's a layer of anonymity that existed in Beirut as well, which is, and I think it's been mentioned at the panels repeatedly, just how leaderless the moment is, even in that kind of setting, it's leaderless too. That's right. In a way, everyone's sort of participating on an equal footing. Yeah, and I mean, there is a challenge there, which is why I said there is a negative part of it, is that you are living more than three time zones. When you're coordinating with the world, yeah. Yeah. you can see how many we are. We're more than 15 million out there. If only one quarter of us votes in the elections, that's the whole country, right? If only one quarter of us would actually vote in the election. It's very powerful. Yeah. Uh, it's very challenging. It's So many of us actually went through burnouts and yeah. we're like, I can't do this anymore. And someone else would step up, right. which was also beautiful. Now, the shift that happened was that at first we were very reactionary. We wanted to just go out and protest every single week, every single day. We would stay up till 4 a.m. in the morning. I actually asked this naively. Mm-hmm. The, the moment hit here as quickly as there. Yes. So, so October 17th. 18 here mm-hmm. was as dramatic in your opinion mm-hmm. like what was, was the impact felt right away or did it was it sort of did it take a little bit of time to realize what was happening right so october 17 was the day where we did our first protest at the at the consulate october 17 october really? 17 in the in the evening that's that's crazy yes so really really you're watching beirut at night protest real time and you were here that evening in new york that's right yep. that's wow. right wow wow so it really is an instant sort of connectivity absolutely yeah. absolutely and the next day in the morning we were at the consulate with our um with okay. our statement right? yes um, those so are the first. Sorry, those are the first hours I was telling you about yes, when yeah, we were yeah. writing that statement. It was right. the first night. Yeah, and we were we were up all night watching the news. Right, and we realized something you know, was happening miraculously yeah. that what we were afraid of imposing on the movement yeah. is what the people were demanding on the street. Say that again. Sorry, you were you were afraid so of. So we imposing? were writing a kitab yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the whole content of the kitab was. Istinkaran to denounce the police brutality that happened in downtown Beirut. Right. And to say it is not fair. And we yeah. were thinking, honestly, we were thinking of ways of kind of framing the tax on WhatsApp as also damaging the, the expats because that's how we talk to our parents. 
Right. Um, so right. we were thinking right there. Yeah. But as we watched the news the first night, we realized that what we had feared to include in that kitab, which is a demand for a transitional government and early elections, yes. in other words, to eliminate the sectarian system, was what people were saying on the street. Yeah, and what was crazy was that yeah. the next day, Kristal Tabit adds us on a group and is like, Elsa, yes. whatever, let's, let's start organizing. And apparently France... London, at the Paris, London had already started. Mm-hmm. People in British Columbia were starting to organize. People in Cleveland, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, in Australia, so many places in Australia, uh, Nigeria, yeah. um, even places in Brazil, like all around, right? They, were, they also just started off, you know? It's like there was a momentum over there. Um, Can I add something? Sure. Just, just, since we're, because connectivity, and that yeah, yeah. that goes back to your question. Connectivity it sounds like it's really is happening within seconds. Like that's the, that's what Elsa yeah. was talking about about yeah. living multiple time zones. Right, right. The news, coordinating, and also living in New York City, like yeah. having an actual life somewhere else. We're trying to have a sleep pattern that works. Yeah, <laughs> most definitely. Well, there's something yeah. else that I would add to what Elsa was saying. Yeah, and that. Elsa is actually describing it's the willingness to do it. Yeah. Right. The political willingness to do it. Can I ask you both? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm assuming you're on the same page for the most part. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting together here in February. That is that a responsibility that the diaspora should take on itself to just be more politically charged? Because what you're describing is a very special moment. Right. Where you have the whole diaspora... Or the whole world, the whole Lebanese population, there's enough momentum around the world that Lebanon is important and Lebanon matters. So that's where I go back to when we say diaspora, it's not one thing. It's so many things, right? But, and yeah, and I right. mean, in terms of responsibility, it's... But I mean, you're giving an example, which I, I did not know, mm-hmm. that the protests went to the consulate first, mm-hmm. right? I, I thought it was Washington Square, actually. So it's, it's important. That's a Lebanese, that's the Lebanese state. Yep, you're going to the state. We petitioned the state before we did anything else. I think that's right. how we stood out in New York. So is that a more fruitful way of bringing things or making things happen in Lebanon? Not necessarily. Actually, no. okay. not at all, but there is something about experience right here. Mm. Some of us around the world, I don't want to say we're seasoned activists. I personally, I don't consider I was ever an activist, even when I was in Lebanon. I was defending myself and my community. Listen, and I'm Lord, I say this with full confidence. You need a sexy scarf to be an activist. You've got the scarf, so you're an activist. <laughs> I mean, you know. Not many people can pull off purple in a scarf that I way. <laughs> I won this because a bunch of Marlboro merchants in uh, the Gayet in, in Hamra once came up to me like, would you smoke a pack of Marlboro? Okay, so let me tell you, Nord. Marlboro, Hamra, <laughs> scarf, that's revolution. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! No, but Sarah, like to, to go back to it. <laughs> no, but really, like I think that, I think that's, and that's 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 one thing why why I really relate to this revolution. Yeah, we always had those conversations as, as friends first who left from the same place and who found each other in Brooklyn, mm. um, or welcomed each other in Brooklyn, created kind of a space for us. In Beirut or Lebanon in general, we weren't essentially active because we only had a transformative idea in our head. Because we, mm. It was because we were defending ourselves and our right to exist the way we wanted to in those alternative spaces. Mm. It was always a war of position for us. And right. when we saw this happening on the street, yeah. there's so much affect to it. And yeah. this conversation we've had for some time. 
as a generation, I cannot include all the diaspora because I don't want to be totalizing in that sense. But as a generation, most of the people who are in the diaspora right now are people uh, suffering precisely the same experiences that we did back home, many of them at least, who needed to get out to find new opportunities, Mm -hmm. to find new livelihoods to yeah. grow. So they're you know? here because Lebanon is no longer serving their immediate needs and they're suffering by default. And essentially the immediate needs is oh. just, you don't, many of the times you don't perceive a future in Lebanon. Mm. That's not, you know, let's not fool ourselves. There, yeah. is a reason why, there is a reason why a revolution broke out yeah. and there is a reason why I personally left Lebanon before the revolution broke out. There was a point where I felt like I was hitting a block. Yeah, you know, and I needed to grow. Yeah, you know, uh, as a PhD student, I only had the opportunity to do PhD in one university, but there would be yeah. someone else yeah. who would come from New York and take away my job. You know, right? And I found a way out. Yeah, I'm I'm a lucky person. I'm yeah. I'm a privileged person exactly. for having found my way out. We feel like we got kicked out from our hometowns. But that's what I meant. So that there's, it's it's not a sort of just a normal. Uh, Diaspora, like the Irish American experience or the Hungarian American, that this is a, a community that is immediately affected, or at least recently affected by the economic and political problems at home. I mean, I can relate to numbers of diasporas around the world yeah. with whom I could find a shared experience. Mm-hmm. Feeling like you want to be in your space, mm-hmm. in your natural habitat, mm-hmm. per se, mm-hmm. quote unquote. But there's, there are also things that impose on you to head out for reasons, yeah. you know, for economic reasons, for financial reasons, yeah. for uh, livelihood reasons, for opportunities of growth. Most of the time you're hoping to go back with better experiences. Right, right. And, you know, all of those yeah. add up to feeling exiled. Have you disagree with me. I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm always aware of, of, of my, my, my experience, my privileges, my, my type of strategy, right? Because it's not always in alignment. Mm. Um, I'm always careful about gener- generalizing, and especially after having organized with so many people who, have di- who come in with different privileges, who right. come in with different abilities, yeah. who come in with different disabilities, who come in with different privileges and visions and all, right? So... Um, and plus, my experience of Lebanon is very different. I come from a very like in Lebanon. We know, we all know that we come in with so much baggage from our families and their experiences during the war, or their experiences outside the war, or their experience in a country. That, if if I were a person who has been living in the U.S. all my life and never even seen Lebanon, like it's right. so different. That's why I'm very careful. But I'm, I'm curious. Do you guys have older generations within your family that left Lebanon? Mm-hmm. Okay, and does technology just make our generation a lot more emotionally charged about the moment? Meaning that it is so much easier for us to do exactly what you guys are describing, that you can feel like you're part of the moment. Within seconds of a demonstration there, you're protesting here. That there's no need to detach. I always sense that the older generations found themselves needing, maybe against their own personal desires, but, but needing to stay somewhat detached to function here. Mm. It's almost like uh, there's a severing of that. Now you can be Lebanese in America and really be Lebanese. I mean, you can even take part in a Lebanese moment at home here Mm. in ways that are, they don't really exist in in at least Lebanon's story. I I don't know of a moment that, even going back to the Ustin crisis, 
I don't, I don't remember that even reaching beyond potentially Beirut or a bigger protest in March 2005. You had some snippet, you had flickers of it, but nothing like today. And I think going back earlier, it's, there's no example of it. Because hmm. I know technology is somehow, somehow, I think it's steering a lot of things that are happening in Lebanon, and I think it's also allowing for the, all these different facets of the diaspora to explore what it means to be Lebanese today. I mean, technologies were there in 2015, but I feel like there's a completely different vibe to this. Um, so what is this that? Time. So I keep asking this question over and over different people. Mm. What is it that's different? And I, and I will play devil's advocate. Four and a half months, potentially five months into this moment, Lebanon looks like it's in a very detrimental place. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I, yes. and I no way would ever put any blame on the protests, throw that out the window. Mm-hmm. But it is also true that Lebanon is going through a very, very, very difficult chapter, mm-hmm. with or without the protests. But what is unusual? I think the difference right now is that it's not only Lebanon. I feel that mm. the difference right now is that we, we had seen Chile going on and Hong Kong going on for so long as well. I'm saying here, mm. right? Mm. Right? For me, yeah, yeah, personally, yeah. Yeah. I have Iranian friends here. Right. I have people, Ch- Chilean friends here. I have Georgian friends here. In New York, yeah. because of all that diversity, I've been around people who also, who, whose countries also have been going through revolutions. And I feel like this also made me feel like more engaged with my own revolution. Aside from the fact that all my life, I've dreamt of this revolution. I've built up for this revolution. Yes. We have, So actually. that's interesting. So it's almost like a horizontal way of looking at it, that a protest in Hong Kong or Chile or, or anywhere, you feel like you're part of that moment too, to a degree. I, being here in New York, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, because of the proximity of having people around me who are also from these countries. Does that motivate you to do more? as a Lebanese protester abroad? It gives me more of a broad overview. It shows me how intersectional the fight is. Interesting, yeah. But there's something I would like to point out here. Sure. We're still in the, in the diasporic experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is something that I have taken it upon myself as an individual to tackle all the time, which I feel that even within the institutions in the diaspora, this yeah. conversation is kind of silenced. Mm-hmm. Our perception of the revolution is our personal experiences. And yeah. as Elsa was just saying, I've known Elsa for some good 12 years, you know, and the bulk of those 12 years were organizing in uh-huh. Lebanon together. Oh, from back then? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we come starting from with very student much movements. Starting with the student movement. So 12, um, just 12 years ago, I mean, what was the first time that you guys sort of participated together? I, I pers- the way I see it, because I feel like it will add into something that I mentioned earlier yeah. and I'd like to talk about. I think the reason we, for me, the reason why we connected is mm. because we went through, uh, we both went through different but very similar moments of rupture with this process of new liberalized activism and went into something more serious mm. that we considered closer to us. When you were still uh, there. When yeah. we were still there. Yeah. Do you, so, was it a particular... Uh, moment I mean, or, honestly, no. the first time I actually met him, he was reading poetry um, at a cafe that I always go to. It's a, it's a very, um, I would say, activisty cafe. It's not really an activisty cafe, but it's where everyone it's one is, right? One of the one of the main core places in Hamra, and he was reading poetry there. And I was with another person who had also given me so many books and yes. opened my eyes to. Shout out to Cafe Yunus. Yes, I, I was going. <laughs> 
to suggest it, and I didn't want. I was like, "Am I dating myself?" But you just dated yourself. <laughs> I mean, Eunice makes good coffee. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Eunice makes hell of good coffee, and his crew. Yes. From the person who cleans the bathroom to the person who guards the space at night, are the best people I met in Beirut. For them, I have a home. So that home. kind. I mean, I know I, what you're describing. I know it's so. I mean, I know exactly what you're describing. It's mm. that Hamra politics that has survived war, survived many things. Hamra is still where politics is discussed and Eunice is our cafe. Right. But we had older cafes that we don't obviously don't yeah. ever went to. But that's what you took with you to New York. That that kind of the the moment is not fresh to you. It's a it's a build up from yeah. okay. That's yeah, yeah. right. That's okay. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even n- noticing our maturity, um, our maturity in our art, because I write, I write songs. He mm. writes poetry. Even in our in our academic journey, we've been really yes. there, f- in there and in conversation with ourselves and with each yeah. other. Right. Um, so yeah, our experiences are quite different, I'd say. So okay, so that your personal, I like the way you, I like that you remind me also that it's a personal interpretation. Yeah, that's important. And, yeah, just to get to that point. Yeah. The, the reason I feel this is different mm. is precisely the fact that it's not coming out of Hamra. Mm. Right. And acknowledge, having just acknowledged that I personally am a product, I was radicalized in Hamra among the people there, among all those discourses that engage yeah. and converse in spaces in coffee shops in Hamra, this one didn't come out of Hamra. Mm. Right. It That's, came out of lower... Yeah working class environments where people did not essentially come into the protest with yes. preset convictions of how a future would look like. Yeah. But for the, through the build-up, there were certain uh, ideas, terminology, certain yeah. uh, responses that you would utilize right away. It's like the Linga Franca opposition in Lebanon. Something like which has been going around yeah. for the past 10 years yeah. as a joke but it does exist yes. which was a 2015 and before that in Lalit Timdid when the parliament extended 2013 that idea of the taxi driver knows it and said it in a more vulgar way right you know right, that right, right, right. I don't know what you know yeah. and then I don't know if you guys remember but you know, a month probably before the revolution I was in Lebanon it looked disgusting it was so sad I was so sad um, but there was a reportage on TV that mocked those people who would say, kilon, kilon, and then they ask him, what about this guy? And then they would say no. Right. And it became a public joke. Part yeah. of how I read it when the protests came out, when the revolution broke out, people were responding to that reportage. So you, so I, this is a very, 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 very personal story. Mm-hmm. I like that. So you, you were acknowledging at the beginning that the cafes are not steering the ship which is important yes. you're acknowledging that this is a popular movement mm-hmm. beyond Hamra which is critical and the class element is often overlooked class element and you're I think bridging two things here you're bridging what it feels for you to be abroad reacting to that moment and you're also acknowledging that this is a local affair yes, yes. right now I'm going to take us from the diaspora to the domestic. This is a slightly sensitive question, and you say as much as you'd like. And uh, I think Noor and I were lucky to have seen some people 
at least portray the story in a way that maybe did not resonate with me. I don't know if it resonated with you. And you say as much as you'd like. We're seeing a decline in the momentum of the protest Mm -hmm. movement. That's a fact. And we're also seeing uh, the use of intimidation and sometimes outright violence. And this goes back to late October, early November, and it it recurs in different ways. Can we just take a second to recognize and... Just a second of mourning, just really to recognize all the martyrs and appreciate every single injury that happened since the beginning of this revolution. Yeah, of course. I just always like to put it out there. Of course, and it's also, I mean, that is very important, and it's also equally important to remember that we are really, really doing well, given how violent things are in Iraq and Iran, that we stand out, and sometimes in, in really wonderful ways, too, that both are, both are happening. We're being hurt, but we're also not letting us spill into outright. Very violence. woke. <laughs> yes. Um, woke. I never thought I'd hear, hear that word when it comes to the name soda, but here you go. That's that's uh, academia in New York and Lebanon bringing. Well, yeah, come no. to think about it, you know, to 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 to, to describe the bank situation as violence, it just strikes me. You know, as like well, okay, so that's that's fair, and I, I, what I was referring to more was the, and academically, I don't know if this is being used yet, but I've heard it among uh-huh. thinkers and pundits, the counter revolution. Yes, that intimidation towards the revolution, however you want to describe it, is that that mechanism. Do you think that it will tolerate true reform in Lebanon? And I don't mean only Hezbollah. I'm not talking specifically about them. And you know what? We're born... I mean, you guys are born in the 90s, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, we grew up with other sub-state groups. Our parents are familiar with other actors as well. And our children may may know others too. It's not that group in particular. Mm -hmm. But the capabilities of that group and groups that can diminish the moment sure can these protests yield structural change with that kind of intimidation in the background and again it's a sensitive question but you say as much as you'd like about that and I mean it honestly I mean it from your own personal view not trying to get too sort of uh, analytical here just your own subjective kind of reaction to that is, is it possible um, I mean I don't see big change before a year or two from now Mm. or before the elections and even when the elections happen I think there will be infiltration but Mm. not necessarily a complete overshadowing of the current state Mm. of Mm -hmm. affairs right Um, but again I say it's a revolution of the mind how the sectarian ghost or the the fear of um, al-faragh emptiness I don't know how they translate that but um, that's it's bad fear. empty. It's not a good empty. Vacuum. It's vacuum. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. fear of the vacuum yeah. that right. they were saying it yeah. was going to happen, right? Yeah. That illusion, I think, completely shattered. Of course, there are some remnants mm. here and there mm. uh, of sectarian yeah. bullshit, if I may say, um, uh, in our families who actually went through the war. Of course, it's a trauma. It's an experience that they had gone through. But there is a, 
even with that counter-revolution, people are still having conversations at a whole other level. I think the sectarian baba, the sectarian monster, has kind of shrunk a bit. And the conversation mm. is much more... Um, towards, for instance, now we can see that yeah. there's a there's a material monster, a bank not giving us the money that we own, right? There are some material things that are popping up here and there where people are like, okay, our, our, our enemy is not necessarily the guy who helped us when the fires erupted and the guy who opened our, uh, their, his house for us when the fires erupted, even though he's Muslim or Christian or he's, he's Christian or Muslim or whatever that is. No, my enemy is the elite, that is being protected, right? That right. is taking my money away from me. That is also connected to an international network of people who are doing the same to other, so many other places. And the second thing I thought yeah. of, if I may, mm -hmm. is that we should always look back at places like, for instance, Bahrain's revolution or mm -hmm. Syria's revolution, uh, how it started. Yeah. All those places where revolutions happened and maybe learn some things. Uh, even if this moment won't be the moment for us, it's the start of a moment. And I see it so clearly. Um, and, and it's good to learn. But in that sense, and that is, is it, I'm, I'm, you tell me if I'm getting this the wrong way, that weapons are not important because we're overcoming the burden of sectarianism. That we're able to see, that, that in other words, traditional intimidation, let's say, or whatever, pressure can be overcome simply because we're looking at things beyond that, this entire structure. I'll give you an example. When um, some people came down and they're like, Shia, 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 the protesters started saying Shia, 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 right? They're like, we're protesters and we're also Shia, but we're on this side. So you're not going to be like, you're not going to isolate yourself from us and say, because you're Shia, you're against the revolution. No, we're also Shia and we're part of the revolution, right? Interestingly, look what happened right afterwards. Mm. I mean, yeah, there are several shifts, but also another example. When I was in, on the streets in Beirut and I, like, we had closed the roads uh, at, at Ring, right? And I stopped one of the cars. This guy just comes and stands next to me and he's like, okay, I'm going to stop the car with you, even though it's, it was a general security car. And then he calls me Abu Ali, right? And this guy... No, in normal days, I would have passed by and he would have been like, <laughs> right? It's a completely different shift even in perspective of who is down there on the streets with you, how they perceive you, even though my hair looks like that. I was screaming like crazy. I'm a woman. I am obviously, I mean, I don't take care of myself as much as a Lebanese woman should, right? Or does. So, I mean, that shift in cultural approaches as well as that sectarian monster being kind of shamed, for me, is, is a really amazing step, despite the threats of um, slih, like weapons. So, or so in other words, it's despite the threat, that, yeah. that the power is in just simply that people are challenging it yeah. by default. That's what I think. Okay. It might be naive, but that's it's what I think. not naive at all. You know, when it comes to the question of weapons and Hezbollah, and I was in the same talks that you're talking about. I don't mean to be, you know, it's... No, it's, it was... Honestly, a, they didn't let me on too much information that I wasn't thinking about. Uh, but I really appreciated that talk mm. and uh, all the perceptions or yeah. the, all the perspectives that were put about. And I would go with Elsa on this. Mm. On the street, as a proactive... Yeah. Uh, as, as a proactive movement, it is despite all that threat. Mm -hmm. But um, you see... There's, 
When it comes to Slech, I always go back to Gibran Basile's talk at Davos. <laughs> talk about counter-revolution. No, I'm serious. Can I ask you, uh, yes. which, which, which one? The more recent one or the... The most recent one. When he was... Uh, yeah. uh, Hadley Barbara. What's her name? G- Gamble? G- Hadley Gamble. Hadley Gamble, yeah. The only thing that really concerned me from that talk is watching him characterize precisely correctly what the Lebanese revolution is about right now. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Especially when she mentioned the, the weapons and mm-hmm. Hezbollah. Yeah. And he was like, well, the Lebanese people actually are agreeing on something else right now, so you don't have to bring in the specter because they're actually trying to do something with their lives that's not just going back into that same problem that's going to divide them. Mm-hmm. And when I was watching it, I was like, what the hell? Are you with us? He knows exactly what's happening on the streets. Mm. And he chooses not to listen. So I'm getting from both of you to a degree that it's beyond just that party's abilities or a group like that. That The simple fact is because the structure is being discussed and, and attacked, that their weapons are really like they're unable to achieve that kind of derailment. Okay, three images about this. Mm. First, I realized that we haven't gotten to the point to talk about like what exactly the regime is in Lebanon or how you know, we think this regime is and what this revolution is about. I already mentioned that the revolution is is revolution in as much as it has this transformative ideal of the regime needs to change and everyone, regardless, and really, we need to start appreciating disagreeing on small issues, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. in the diaspora or inside. We don't have to be one big unit. Our obsession with totalization is really our anxiety, our anxiety from years and years of disintegration and dysfunctional uh, unity, right? You know, it's very symbolic for us. So, Damon, but we need a leader. We need whatever. We can agree to accept each other's disagreements and have a civilized, uh, yeah. not a civilized, and have a proper conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a revolution in as much as it has this transformative nature, this transformative claim. The sectarian system needs to go. Yeah. But in fact, in reality, as Elsa is saying, it has imposed certain discourses in the public life. But women about rape, about empowerment, about the working class, yeah. about the relationship between political leaders and bank owners, uh, that financial political elite, yeah. ab- about weapons, about security, about really, is it now that we are threatened by this violence? Honestly, I grew up in Zatl Blad, so I saw this violence from the guy who stood under my building yeah. up, up until the guy who searched me at the airport. Right. So like, right. it's, it's always existed. Mm-hmm. But now, despite all of those things, there is there are those new ideas coming in and imposing themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this yeah. is how much pluralist this revolution is. On the other hand, it is very important not to underestimate how deeply entrenched the sectarian state of living is. Yeah. Hezbollah is yeah. one rogue state. It's the strongest rogue state, but it's a rogue state in mm-hmm. Lebanon mm-hmm. within a sectarian system that strives in a state of anarchy, that strives on the dysfunctionality of an actual state. Mm. You know? And mm. this is why, this is where I see the counter-revolution working right now. You know, uh, right. In times of right. crisis, you're going back to that clientelist system where you benefit. Yeah. And they already have their institutions established from welfare to school to food. To yeah, the power of ideas. <laughs> so it's very strong to fight, you know, and they only... And Here's one thing that Hezbollah did from the beginning of the crisis until now. I saw this one, his, one time historically. I don't want to talk about it because I haven't developed the proper 
I want to say, analytical tools to make the comparison. Mm -hmm. But the fact that Hezbollah presented itself as the sole defender and as the primary defender of the Lebanese government and system shows everybody else, all the other rogue states that I like to recognize as rogue states, all the other sectarian parties, that they are willing to defend the system in Lebanon, the sectarian regime, until the last drip. And what they did right here is not distinguish themselves as a standing out kind of what they say state within the state. Mm -hmm. They actually represented themselves as the protectors (laughs) of the Lebanese state. And by Lebanese state, I don't mean the Lebanese dawli, I mean the Lebanese Nizam al-Ta'ifi, the sectarian state. And if their counter-revolution is with weapons, um, it's going to be completely neutralized in a way. I mean, if, if the weapons is the only thing that we're scared of, that that won't work. What would actually work would be manipulating the mind, which they've been doing for so many years. And not on their own. Not on their own, through institutions, through services, through yeah. all all the shit that we've been going through for okay, so years. Okay, so, I mean, let's... Even one, the fact that we don't have a history book, sorry. But <laughs> I'll take it one step further, because you've eloquently just described both the vulnerability of that kind of arrangement yes. and also the core strength mm-hmm. of what it's been able to do somehow over time become the protector of the regime and that's a very i mean that's a very powerful if you want to call it achievement i don't know if that's an achievement but they're they've really positioned themselves as the bulwark of the old way mm-hmm. can you imagine the street movement challenging the intercommunal arrangement, that thing that we're all trying to, mm-hmm. in one way or the other, move on from, while there's a, and you, you described it well, a rogue state with weapons, can the protesters get their demands through? with that kind of very, very, very big obstacle that doesn't present itself in other recent examples, whether you're, I mean, you, you mentioned Chile doesn't have that kind of sort of uh, situation. Um, Hong Kong faces its own obstacle, but it's not that kind of obstacle. I don't know of an equivalent example. We don't have to look too far. Two countries away, there's Iraq. And yeah, they managed right. to do in ten, less than 10 years what we've been trying to do for the past 50. But even in Iraq, I mean, the question is an ex- is sort of existential, I guess. Can a protest movement get what it's what it wants peacefully through that kind of that big wall, if you will? That's where we locate a war of position. This Sorry, is what, what, what war? someone like Gramsci would call a war of position. War of position. This mm. is a war of position. Mm. Mm. Um, you have to do lots of maneuvers. Mm. You, first and foremost, you have to be very aware of what you're fighting and you have to be very aware of how hard it is to change it. Mm-hmm. And you have to w- be aware of how um, subjective and mm. interchangeable those forms of identities are because many of the people who joined the protests actually still identified with the parties on you know, different levels. I like also know. that both of you hinted at the psychological component that was fractured, I think, to a degree that you don't... Now you can see beyond your own sectarian way that I, and I think you said it that uh, you're, you, now you have protesters who are freeing their minds to a degree mm. right that's central that you have to think of yourself as not what you what you have been 
you know what, why are we sectarian? That's that, that was my question. Like, what is the reason why these people have weapons, right? What is the reason why that w we went through a civil war? What is the reason why... I mean, it's also important to notice that every bank in Lebanon has a correspondent in the U.S. or in France or whatever. It's it's In Iraq, it's the same. It's a system. You guys are both bringing up Iraq, and I think it's important because that is the, that is the closest relatable situation, and it's ongoing. It's still happening. But I get, I get from both of you that the system, if it's challenged effectively over and over and over, this whole thing that we're used to will eventually collapse. And that, that is the... Perhaps that's the inevitable situation that you have to crush the system to get to all of its dirtier components to a degree. Even, even if we do, we're not going to crush it with poems. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like through my art, for example, if we're going to talk about that, yeah. I'm not destroying the regime, but I'm maintaining a war of position. I'm maintaining, I'm guarding the flame with the yeah. ideas that would bring people who think like me to feel that, oh, someone actually feels the same. Mm -hmm. And someone is trying to engage with our feelings as a generation, so for example, as yes. a group of friends, as a community. Yeah. Where that's going to take us is to create this kind of new culture, this counterculture. Right, right. Hella. On the other hand, in Lebanon, guns cannot crush the regime. Right. Because the reason why it's so nonviolent and so peaceful is actually a reaction to the status quo. which is a very violent process, and that goes back to the question, why are we really sectarian? We went through rounds of violence. Sectarianism is inscribed in our bodies, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. on, in our personal experiences, our communal experiences, our private and public experiences yeah. in Lebanon. It's hard, and guns, many people feel so attached to guns, Hezbollah or not Hezbollah, you know? Yeah. There is this, this, uh, this uh, in the consciousness of the Lebanese person, You know, and not to abstract it. Yeah. You always have a, something that's similar to what's used in pop culture as in Mu'adalat al-Dahabi, the golden formulas, okay? And the golden forms of social organization. Uwet, talab, uwet, karitas, you know? Hazab, madaris al-Mahdi, jihad al-Bina. They always exist, those things. Yeah. They exist and they yeah. haunt you. They're, they are how you see the world. Our, our war right now is to get to a point where this is not just a demand from a government. This is, this is a revolutionary movement to get to a place where you can actually demand from the government. I mean, if we go back to even the nucleus of the nucleus out of personal experience from even our student movement, if mm -hmm. you only look at university spaces in Lebanon and how they used to be, right? Yeah. Even in a student movement where we tried to be an independent group at this said university that says it's secular, right? Um, we got threats from political parties who had their own... So, sorry, this is now... So, you're when you're in Hamra? No, in a student movement, like Hamra and yeah, so many other yeah, places yeah, in yeah, Lebanon. Yeah, like, it's a, it's a... Yeah, it's yeah, an intersectional yeah. movement from right, throughout, throughout yeah. Lebanon um, of students who really wanted an independent movement to represent them and their student bodies. That simple, right? Yeah. That, that tiny, that nucleus... And you can see how many people got threatened, how many yeah. people got taken to political party uh, offices, right? It, that, in, its, in a sense, shows how much the sectarian monster was there, right? How, yeah. how people were subscribing to it. Right. Today, I'd say, if a student election were to happen, I think the situation would be very different. Why? Because right now, if we take it back to the bigger macro level of Lebanon, yeah. the, po the politicians and, the, and whatever, the elections at some point were completely 
political party led, just like the, the um, university elections, right? But now people are realizing we don't want this guy to represent us just to represent us. We, we have demands. We have four demands that we've been asking for from the very begin- very start of the revolution. Same goes for a student who'd be like, I actually need a chair to sit on in, in class, right? Yeah. So, I mean, even if we look at the most nuclear part of, like the smallest example in Lebanon and how sectarianism was really engaging with your day-to-day life, yeah. even in your student life, even us and our own personal families, that silence about the civil war, that silence about another person who's not from your same sect, for instance, how it kind of broke. And my family, let's say, I'm not going to generalize, but my mother now can make the difference between a Mendes and the Thauraje. In 2015, she would look at them and be like, everyone, Mendes, say that Mendes. Now, even the protesters who are being violent, People are looking at them as protesters because they see that as a strategy of protest. And that shift is completely important. That shift in discourse is extremely important because it doesn't focus on a sect anymore. It focuses on a strategy. It focuses on a vision. Yeah. Right? You know, you guys are, I think, in a way, representing that. I I mean, at, at its core, I think that's what it comes down to. There's enough people in Lebanon that don't have memories of the boogeyman. And that just lets you test new ideas mm-hmm. you're not afraid of letting this slip and I my earliest memories are the civil war and I'm able to kind of put that in a box and say that's not going to happen but I, earlier I'm assuming the older you get in Lebanon the more paranoid you are that this will lead to violence mm. but now you have enough people born in the 90s that just don't know it they don't know what the civil war was they know what a war is, and you guys are very good at describing your personal experiences. When you say Zal Blot and the guy at the airport, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's that low level of violence we're all familiar with. But that's not civil war. That's just intimidation. And that tends to be security or state intimidation. Totally. Yeah, that's not intercommunal sort of violence. Uh, and I'm guessing all of us have variations of that. We know the 2006 war. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know what many battles look like and feel yeah. like. 2008, Hamra was, yeah. was violent. Yep. And fortunately, it did not degenerate into something worse. Yes. But I, I, I mean... But, but, go but, sorry, sorry. But, I, but I mean, it's just like the, the cutoff that you don't need to be born... If you're born in 1989, you don't have Civil War memories, period. But at the same time, that's what that that's what makes sectarianism even stronger in a sense. That what, what we used to make it stronger because for me, I was listening to my dad's stories of the Civil War, my mm. dad's experiences of the Civil War. Yeah. I didn't have another book to refer to until I got got to, to school, right? Yeah. And started yeah. reading ten different right. books in order to understand how it's happening. Yeah. However, if I had just stopped at my dad's experience, I am very much defining how my experience is, and I'm actually inheriting his experience of the Civil War and making my decisions based on that. That's the difference, I'd say. I I want to actually... What else we inherited? Go ahead. The trauma. Yeah, trans... uh, Absolutely. How do you say there is a transgenerational trauma? It's transgenerational. I would also... Say that again. Transgenerational trauma. trauma. (laughs) I would also (laughs) claim it as a personal trauma. Oh, yeah. 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 Because we'd never seen the guns... You know, okay, I grew up in the south, but in the on the pre Nabatiya south, so I was never living under occupation. I know that kind of horror, but uh, the gun and those ideas and how they chased us from since we were in KG2 and you know, don't tell anybody what your sect is because there might be a civil war. I used to think that if I tell it to my friend in class, 
people are just going to start dying. Mm. And we, you know, every time we did anything, every time we said anything that looked political, we were shamed for it. Mm. That's what I was saying, calling the, the neoliberalized, the depoliticization of the political in Lebanon. Not being, being afraid to be political, so becoming civil society, as if civil society is something not political. You know, as if being secular is right, something not right. political yeah. or, you know, doing alternative politics is not political. You're just part of that very benign, very on the fringes, humanitarian civil society. Yeah. That is your way out, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is a tra- you know, the product of the traumas of civil war. Right. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, the trauma of the civil war, I'm, personally, is not always bad. Some people need the trauma because we will be stupid to replicate the civil war tomorrow. Like, خلاص, haram, come in. Some of us need to forget. My parents need to forget the civil war. You know, need to forget most of yeah. the violence of it. We need to remember a couple of things. Luckily, our generation, the people, not our generation, the, the people involved in the revolution today, luckily, luckily, are woke, are kind of understand this, this dichotomy between, you know, understand the difference between nonviolence and, you know, peaceful and non-peaceful in the sense, you know, like non-violent and violent, peaceful and non-peaceful. So they're doing symbolic acts of resistance and violence, but they know very well that to take out a gun and confront those guys, they're confronting a civil war because those guys are all about the civil war. They strive of it. I'm going to ask you, Noor, because you're a poet, <laughs> if you let me call you. You may not refer sure, to yourself please. as a poet. Uh, do any particular poets resonate with you at the moment? From, from it doesn't have to be Lebanese, but just that it, are there, are there particular poets or poems that kind of uh, make you identify with with what's happening right now? Yeah, if it's not me, honestly, <laughs> not your own, I mean, not your own poetry. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> please don't <laughs> don't refer to There is a great one by Noor Khabib. Yeah, you know that guy. There are two sets of texts that I've been reading recently. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is a new book by Fadid Faile, which is a beautiful exploration of uh, post-war Lebanon uh, when he was young. And it was, it's called Beirut Khams al-Subah. And uh, I was actually revisiting Nazara Ilayas al-Arafat wa Abtasama by, Has- by Yusuf Bazzi. Okay. Which is more of an autobiographical novel, yes. which is a beautiful, beautiful and very nice, well-written account of a personal subjective experience of the war's traumas and getting out of it and deciding to get out of that war mentality in general. Yes. The other set is uh, uh, the new album by Soul Plane, Ta'irat al-Ruh, which is a Lebanese hip-hop collective, mm-hmm. which is a hip-hop collective coming out of Lebanon. Ad Abbas, Zainuddin, Qarar, and Samir. And, um, their new album has resonated with me. I, it's poetry. It's hip-hop. It's rap. And there are the, the new work by by Bunasir and Mazin Sayyid. Yeah, the new album by Hani Sawah. So this so has young, been the playlist. Younger artists are resonating with you, not from the older I mean I mean Yusuf Bazzi and Fadid Faile are sure, both like yeah. you know like nineteen eighties yes, generation, yes. like late war, yeah. post war yeah. uh, situation. But it's both of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading things that I feel like I want to connect with right now. Yeah. And uh, for me what Mazin has been writing about from Lebanon in this specific moment is 
very eloquently put and very nice, you know, very clear and descriptive. It gives me the feeling. You're definitely doing your part. That's for sure. And it's, I'm lucky to be able to even get to know you guys here and know what the, the diaspora and all of its components, whether it's students abroad or whether it's anyone who's curious and still cares about Lebanon, taking it upon themselves to sleep less, get gray hair, and work their asses off on a degree which you're still pursuing and your home country. I think this is a very taxing moment on everyone. But it's also a beautiful moment. And people get to meet each other in, in interesting ways, whether it's the connectivity you were describing earlier or even these panels in New York. Mm-hmm. People are meeting. And I think mm-hmm. it's, poetry is one way of bringing people together and panel discussions is another. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really thrilled to have met both of you. I'm glad those are, there are alternative spaces. Can I just end with one thing just Please. in response yeah. to saying sectarianism strives in a state of anarchy in a dysfunctional state? We as people coming out of Lebanon, we were programmed to strive under so much pressure. They don't understand it. They will not understand it. The people in the government in Lebanon need to understand that the way we lived our lives makes us excellent performers under as much pressure as they put. So bring it on. (laughs) Couldn't have been said better. And now I'm going to make you end it with a poem. Now, can you just tease us with something? (laughs) I'm going to share with you this small text that's part of something I'm trying to write right now and it's called Sanabur it means we will uh, I took the title from something that's been going around Beirut for some time now as a way to count you know kind of uh, to to fight back the idea that the revolution is is, uh, is dying out or it's becoming smaller Mustamarun Sanabur we will overcome we will achieve we will and honestly talk about Khalil Hawi Khalil Hawi's al-Jisr, which I was talking about okay. earlier, yeah. is all about Ubur, Ya'burun al-Jisr, Sanabur. Please. And this one is, a, it's, a, it's a part of it. بتقول, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs-> كرامة مدري مين قاوم مدري أي واطي قالوا البيعة سترة رغم القلي قالوا الله راضي جاعوا صلوا للعجايب ضاعوا صلوا للمشايخ شاخوا شافوا الحلم خايب ذابوا التلج ولاقوا الخاين عامل قائد اعتباطي قالوا الحالي شتعتير الله يساعد الفقير قال الحاكم قلبه كبير قالوا الثورة أكبر قالوا نمضلوا الطريق والشيطان بالتفاصيل قالوا نحن بالشوارع شفنا عزرائيل والله أكبر قالوا نعتم وسلك شايك قالوا الصمت أخطر رغم العتم وليل حالك سنعبر جينا نسلخ العقائد عن جلودنا جينا نحشي بالقصايد مولوتوف كنا نركع للمسلح على دروبنا سرنا نحرق المعابر بلا خوف سنعبر Noor, Elsa, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.